Welcome to lecture six in our series on the trial of Jesus, the Roman trial. In lecture five, we took some time to understand who Pilate was, what we know about him from history, which is not terribly much, but still enlightening. We also got a glimpse of Roman process, how procurators conducted trials, at least in the frontiers. In this lecture six, we turn now to the major drama of our story, Jesus before Pilate. What happened? Why it happened? And there are two parts within this story. One part concerns Jesus' first encounter with Pilate and Pilate's decision to transfer Jesus to Herod. A second part concerns Jesus' return to Pilate, the Barabbas episode, the scourging, and the final fateful decision. All of the details we covered in our last session about Roman process in general seem to be reflected more or less in Jesus' own trial before Pilate. The Sanhedrin trial, as noted, ended at about 6 a.m., and as Mark says, they brought him to Pilate without delay. Whether Pilate was at the Ritz or the Hilton, it seems like it should have been no more than a 10-minute walk, maybe less, if they shoved and poked him along the way, and especially if they were in a hurry, as indeed they were. But what were they thinking in that brisk walk to the Praetorium? Blasphemy was not a crime under Roman law. They knew that. But that's what they had convicted Jesus of doing, blaspheming. But the arrest happened. The trial happened. A conviction occurred. So what do we tell Pilate? Look, they must have said to each other, we know how to work this guy. We know we can rally sentiment against him. Let's spin this into a political crime. This, then, seems to have been their plan. We get a hint of that in the Acts of the Apostles. Quote, Even though they found no charge against him which deserved death, they begged Pilate to have him executed. End quote. Begged. That's an interesting way of putting it. It's also a generous understatement, as we'll see. Listen to this first exchange between Pilate and the Jewish leaders. It must have occurred in some way that allowed the Jews to talk to him, or was it to shout to him, and for him to talk or shout back so the Jews could maintain their ritual purity. It most certainly is the opening volley in the proceedings. Probably after the clerk had been notified that the parties were present, that they were on Pilate's docket, and that Pilate was now ready to hear the pending case. Pilate, quote, What accusation do you bring against this man? Jews. If he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Tisk tisk, a little testy, are we? What do you think Pilate made of that non-answer? Hey, Pilate, we've got this criminal here, and we want you to dispose of him the way we want you to, to dispose of him. Pilate's response, quote, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law, end quote. Hmm, what does that tell you? Pilate had been briefed in advance. He knew the Jewish leaders had concocted religious charges, and he wanted no part of them. His response is all the more biting, because he obviously knew they had already judged him according to their law. I've got nothing for you. This is your problem, not mine. The Jews play their first card. Quote, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. End quote. Hmm, Pilate must have thought. A capital crime? Good grief, what could that be? Why do they think I have grounds to execute this fellow over some religious law? I'd better follow it out further. There's always that chance that it crosses over into Roman law, and I don't want to be accused of ignoring some Roman law, especially since these vipers will surely go over my head about it if they think they have grounds to do so. You see how sparse the words are in this exchange, but how they're so packed with meaning. If you don't stop and think about what exactly is said and why it was exactly said that way, you'll miss the whole story. Do you think Pilate had heard about Jesus before? Oh, you've got lots of grounds to think so. Like all good procurators then and heads of state today, he used spies to get intelligence. If he really was to be the eyes and ears of Tiberius, he had better get all the spy glasses and eavesdropping aids he can get. We'd have to think his spies had briefed him on the various cultural undercurrents, including those surrounding this itinerant rabbi from Galilee, given the growing number of followers he had, the impact it was having on the local religious establishment, the constant threat of revolution from these rebellious subjects, 
And, of course, the amazing stories circulating about him. Healings, so-called miracles, and the like. Stories coming from people who were pretty close to him in one way or another. How about Zacchaeus, one of his own tax collectors? They're a hated bunch. He knew that. But he also knew he could count on their greed to get the best they could from the locals because they stood to personally profit from what they could get. Can't we think that news would have circulated directly to him about one of his own collectors, a very short one, in fact, who was stationed in Jericho, about 16 miles down the hill to the east, and who met this rabbi one day after being called down out of a tree, hosting him for dinner, and then boasting that he would, quote, give half of his possessions to the poor, and that if he had cheated anybody out of anything, which Pilate surely knew he had done, announced he was going to pay back four times that amount, What do you think Pilate had made of that? Or do you think he'd heard what happened to one of his own centurions? Centurions were fairly high up in the chain of command. They were given that name originally because they commanded about 100 legionaries. They might even lead a cohort. And we've seen that word before, 600 soldiers. You had senior and junior versions. And we don't quite know where this fellow of the Gospels fit in. But he seems to have fit in fairly high because of what he told Jesus. When his servant was ill, he approached Jesus and asked him to heal him. Jesus, ever the gentleman, asked the centurion if he would like to, quote, come and heal him. The centurion demurred. No, he said, that won't be necessary. Why not? Well, said the centurion, with astonishing humility for a man in his position, quote, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. See, this guy was a fellow with real authority. He gives orders, and they're obeyed. He kicks butt and takes names, as they say, and he figures Jesus does too. Please don't trouble yourself. Just say the word, and I'm sure it'll be done. And it was done and a servant was healed at that very hour. Do you think the centurion returned back to the barracks at Antonia without talking about it? Do you think the words that spread across the gambling tables and drinking games among the soldiers failed to reach Pilate's ears? Do you think Pilate may have even questioned this fellow or the fellow's fellow officers to make sure his centurion was still loyal to his post and wasn't, as they say, going native? Maybe Pilate decided to question Jesus not because he had any interest or concern in the charges brought against him. Maybe Pilate just wanted to see this fellow up close, with his own eyes, out of curiosity, or fear, or to hedge bets. Pilate then interrogates Jesus. I want to pause for just a minute and have you appreciate what scholars have noticed about the Gospel of John in this area, something so subtle and so profound that you probably won't notice it on your own. John is interested in the staging of these scenes, and I mentioned this at the outset in Lecture 1. Pilate and Jesus appear in seven scenes, and they alternate with Pilate going in and out. Whenever Pilate goes in to have a conversation with Jesus, Pilate is in the dark, speaking to the light of the world, and yet Pilate cannot see the light. And when Pilate goes out, he goes out into the light and cannot see. Scripture scholars call this a chiastic arrangement, as it's intentional, an inverted parallel structure, which we don't have time to go into more. But we'll be treading into this chiastic structure when we talk about Pilate's proceedings with Jesus. Pilate also asks Jesus four questions. Theologians have noticed that at the Passover Seder, four questions are asked too. Could there be some connection? Is this event, this exchange with Pilate, somehow indicative that what is happening to Jesus in this passion narrative over the course of these several hours is really the Passover dinner writ large? Ah, but we digress. Pilate says, quote, Are you the king of the Jews? See, Pilate's interested. He's direct. No beating around the bush here. No, so why don't you tell me about your disciples and doctrine like Annas did? Pilate must have heard claims that he was the king of the Jews, or that he said he was, or that someone said he was, or something like that, whatever. Jesus replies, 
quote. You have said so. Now, this is one of those idioms in Greek that mean yes. They don't sound right to our ear, but I'm sure 500 years from now, when historians are reading the many idioms that we use in our own patterns of speech, they'll find it strange to their ear when they read us saying, you bet, in response to some question. You bet? What? Did this have something to do with that place called Vegas? To us, it means yes. The phrase, you have said so, meant the same to them, but without the kind of informality that attends our substitute. At this point, Pilate decides to ask the Jews for information, and it's appropriate that he does so. It's a little bit of a problem that this fellow standing before him has just answered yes when he asks him whether he is the king of the Jews. Note, by the way, that Jesus actually answered him. He didn't remain silent, at least not in that exchange, as he had done before the Sanhedrin. What do the Jewish leaders say in response? Quote, He's stirring up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, and beginning from Galilee, even to this place. Well, he certainly wasn't tried before the Sanhedrin on any of those charges. Stirring up the people? What kind of charge is that? Nevertheless, it is an accusation, and so the judge turns to the defendant for an explanation. Pilate, have you no answer? See how many things they accuse you of. See, even Pilate doesn't know what the charges are. He has to say, quote, see how many things, because no specific charge has been raised. But, judge that he is, he's still giving the defendant a chance to explain himself. Go ahead, he's saying. Here's your chance to defend yourself. I want to hear your side of things. But now, Jesus remains silent. He chooses not to defend himself, to not present his side of the case. Funny. All he needed to say was, what things? And his case might be over. You'd think that all this bothered Pilate. He's got a case where the chief priests have brought charges against a young upstart who claims to be their king, and the young upstart won't respond. How's he supposed to make some ruling regarding that? But the Gospels of Luke and Mark write with some kind of inside information on Pilate's thinking, because at this stage of the interrogation, they say Pilate did not believe Jesus was guilty. Mark says that Pilate realized the chief priests were acting out of envy. But as a jurist, Pilate had a problem. He had a qualified yes to deal with in response to his question on whether the defendant was the king of the Jews. He couldn't just drop the proceedings at the point. He needed to ask a few more questions. Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? He asked that question again. Maybe he ran out of things to say. Was he expecting to get a different answer now? He didn't even bother to ask him what he now was being charged with. So is that true? Are you stirring up the people? At this point, when Pilate asks Jesus again, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus might have invoked a common legal objection, asked and answered. But he decided to turn the question back on Pilate. Quote, are you saying this yourself or have others told you about me? It almost sounds as if Pilate really was toying with belief in Jesus and that Jesus knew it. Maybe news of Zacchaeus and the centurion really had sunk into him. Maybe it was that look in the eye. Can you imagine what it'd be like to look into the human eye of the Lord and creator of the universe? Pilate wavers, quote, Am I a Jew? Your own people and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? My goodness, he sounds earnest. He did not know. He really wants to know. He states the obvious. No, he is not a Jew. He is a universe away from being a Jew. He must have thought, you people are so weird. You have all these bizarre rules. You circumcise yourselves, for God's sake. Why would you do that to yourselves? And your stupid rules about pork and shellfish, perfectly good, utterly delicious foods, and your obsession with cleanliness and uncleanliness, why on earth do you think that matters so much? And he figured Jesus was standing there thinking the opposite. Your gods are stupid and your superstitions are silly. 
And you people are really a perverse lot with all your aberrant sexual practices. You treat human beings horribly. as no more than bugs to be squashed. And you have no respect whatsoever for human life. Yeah, you can make cool roads and coliseums, but they don't make you happy. Not even your power does. You are rich, miserable idiots. Jews and Romans not just thought these things about each other. They often said these things to each other. No doubt with the equivalent of Bronx cheers and California driving signals. But Pilate wants to know, why is it these other fellow Jews of yours hate you so much? Tell me. I need to know, are you really claiming to be their king? Jesus' response is elaborate and startling, especially when you consider that he felt perfectly composed to not respond to any question when he didn't want to. He said, quote, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my followers would have fought that I might not be delivered to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Aha, says Pilate, trying to suppress the shock he must have felt when this fellow said his kingdom was, quote, not of this world. You are then a king, Jesus. You said it. Hear it again. There's that yes. This is why I was born and why I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. At this point, Pilate utters those fateful words which have come down to us through history and ring in literature and poetry, philosophy, and in the halls of America's finest educational institutions as a pejorative to him and everyone who echoes him. Quote, what is truth? We don't see his face when he said this. We can't hear the tone in which he delivered it. We don't quite know what he meant when he said it. What is truth? Was he being some haughty, pompous-ass college professor, asserting through rhetorical query that there really was no such thing as truth? Or was he being an introspective, sensitive, coffee barista who really did wonder what is truth? We really don't know. As I've said before, take your pick. Either plausible. But here's what I think is most incredibly implausible. Immediately after saying this, after hearing Jesus' affirmation that he, in fact, is the king of the Jews, in at least some sense, if not in this world, then in the next, after hearing the charges the high priest had brought against him, Pilate steps out to the Jews and says these words for all to hear him. Quote, I find no guilt in him. End quote. Extraordinary. Trial's over. Defendant acquitted. Case dismissed. Everyone just chill and go home. That means you, Caiaphas, and why don't you go fix the tear in your robes? It's really not very fashionable of you to be running around town in torn robes on a feast like this. Don't you have some Jewish tailor around you somewhere? I think it's time for another one of my espressos. Slave? And you hear Pilate go, clap, clap. But it didn't quite stop like this. It could have. And Pilate could have let Jesus go free. And God would have figured out some other way our salvation would be achieved and all prophecies fulfilled. It could have happened that way. Pilate had, of course, free will. He could have freely chosen to let Jesus go or not go. But he would not let Jesus go, and that's what's really cool about the omniscience of God. It stretches across contingent causes and doesn't make these things happen. He just knows they will happen. The cause of contingent causes, with Pilate being one of his contingent causes to redeem the world. Wow. Try and unpack that for a minute, or an hour, or a lifetime. But we press on. Here's what Pilate did that he didn't have to do, at least assuming that he was responsible for having heard a charge of a capital crime brought to him by local authorities. He decided to transfer Jesus to Herod. Someone must have told him, Hey, you know this guy's from Galilee, and he's really under the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas because Herod reigns in Galilee, subject to you, of course, governor. If he got this advice, I feel like it was classic political advice. Pilate, listen to me for a second. Don't decide the issue yourself. You're just gonna piss people off on one side or the other. If you let him go, you're gonna be hated even more by the Jewish authorities, and you don't want to antagonize them if you don't have to. You know what they're capable of doing. 
And if you convict him, what are you going to say to those thousands of people who have been following him around lately? You know, they say he fed some 5,000 people recently with just a few loaves and fishes. What are we going to say to them and all the others? Look, why don't you just kick him over to Herod? Let him deal with it. It'd be the safest thing for you to do. This should not be your problem. Make it his. He wants to be ethnarch down here. See if he's got the kahunas to act like one. Plus, if it doesn't work out for him, then, well, uh, you know. Political advisors get hired and fired all the time, and no one remembers the bad advice they give. Maybe that was true here, because no one remembers who it was who may have actually advised Pilate to take this course. He wasn't required to do it. His motive is unclear. He couldn't predict. Nay, he didn't predict what would happen next. And it was all him, even if he was so advised. And it rang true from that other event we know about him up north in Caesarea Maritima. If only he had asked, I wonder what happens if I threaten to kill all these demonstrators around the Hippodrome, and then they dare me to kill them. If only he had asked here, I wonder what happens if I transfer Jesus to Herod, and Herod then bounces him back to me. See, he never was good about playing the what happens next game. But he played it. And to his everlasting shame and failure and his insertion into the Nicene Creed 300 years later. Remember what we said about Herod Antipas? He was the youngest and cleverest son of Herod the Great. He watched his brother get kicked out of Judea while he was ruling just fine up north in Galilee. Antipas spent his life curing favor with the Romans trying to show that he was not like his stupid brother, that he was kingly, and that he would make a proper kingly successor to his father, and that he would <clears throat> just love to be ethnarch over that most majestic city with all of its wealth and pomp and honor. Hey, look at me. I'm really a good guy. You can trust me, old buddy, buddy Roman nose. Well, for whatever reason, and by all accounts, nothing personal to him, the Romans just weren't ready to appoint any ethnarch over Judea and rather liked the way things were working out, thank you very much. This was the same Herod who had his run-in with John somewhat accidentally. It was his damn wife Herodias, and she was the one who had an axe to grind against John's head, because John called her out for violating marriage laws. See, Herod had a half-brother living in Rome, Herod II, as he was known, as his mother was the third wife of Herod the Great, and the daughter of the high priest Boethus, and whom Josephus says was the most beautiful woman of her time. Now, this Herod II had managed to stay alive under his father's reign, although his father had asked that he be killed after his death, an order left unfulfilled. It helped, probably, that he lived in Rome and had taken as his wife a woman named Herodias, a princess from the Hasmonean line, who must have been some real looker herself, so much so that one day, when Antipas was in Rome visiting his half-brother, he became smitten with Herodias and persuaded her to leave Herod II and come to Galilee with him and shack up together, or as we should say, become palace mates together. Of course, Antipas would have to cut his own wife out first, which he readily did. His wife was the daughter of an Arab king from the south, so he didn't think it would be a big deal. Of course, her dad did and so he launched a war against Herod later on in 36 AD. And there was another complication about Antipas and his eventual marriage to Herodias. She happened to be Herod the Great's niece, meaning that Antipas and her were uncomfortably related so as to be in, hmm, an incestuous relationship, at least according to Jewish law, which is one of the things that John was calling them out on. Nobody likes to be called out on hillbilly relationships, even then. But Herod actually feared and liked John. As Mark records, quote, Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod, get this, feared John and, get this, protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled yet he liked to listen to him, end quote. Wow, no kidding that this guy was no chip off his dad's block. 
His dad would have cut John's head off in a Hasmonean minute. This Herod feared John. He protected John. He liked to listen to John. You get the sense he was like the owner of some brothel who would sneak down to the basement and watch televangelists late at night. You kind of feel for the guy. Even scripture records he was, quote, greatly distressed to have to kill John. I guess so. He had paid for a dance with the price of John's head. Quite a belly dance it must have been. But Herod had his own connection to Jesus. Luke records Jesus as saying, quote, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal, end quote. Surely someone must have told Herod this. Imagine Herod's glee when he heard this new superstar had called him that fox. Ooh, I bet he liked that. I'm a fox, huh? Cool. And Herod must have had special interest in that other part of Jesus' message to him. This guy really casts out demons? Man, I'd love to see that. And perform cures? There were those uh, lepers in the area. They aren't lepers anymore. Man, I'd love to see that too. Must have been like Moses when he showed the Pharaoh he could put his hand inside and outside his cloak and make it go from leprosy to clean back and forth. Wonder if he can do that too. There's a, there's a story going around that he walked on water and then he, he made a herd of pigs jump off a cliff into the sea. What do you think? Can we get that guy to come here? We could throw a huge party. Get that uh, Salome in here again to do a belly dance. Oh, what, what, what's this bit about him reaching his goal on tomorrow and the third day? I don't know. But demons? Lepers? That I gotta see. Now, I'm not stretching any truths through imagination here either. Matthew records what Herod thought about Jesus when Herod first began hearing about him. Quote, This is John the Baptist, he said, with fear intoned in those words. He is risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. See, Herod believed in miracles, even if he didn't believe in them for any of the right reasons. You also see how he feared him? He feared John, we know, and now this guy... Jesus is really John the Baptist, risen from the dead? Oh, shock and terror, how will he avenge me? For sure he had cause to think so. And on Jesus' end, it's not hard to imagine what he might have thought when he first saw Herod. My name is Jesus Nazarene. You killed my cousin. Prepare to die. Forgive me. So you can imagine Herod's excitement that Friday morning when some messenger burst in to tell him that Pilate was sending Jesus over to him. No doubt Herod had heard about the events from the night before. Maybe he was with the Sanhedrin as an honorary guest, although we're really pushing reasonable limits of speculation here. But given the size of the town, the proximity to events, and the craven interest in local politics, you'd have to think he at least woke up Friday morning with quite a bit of chatter going on among the servants and possibly other visitors about the events of the night and early morning hours. How do we know what happened before Herod? Well, we actually have a couple of sources that look like they'd have good knowledge. There was an official in Herod's court named Chusa, and Luke tells us that Chusa's wife was a believer. Thinks she got some pillow talk? And then the Acts of the Apostles records that Herod had a foster brother who was a Christian in Antioch. No reason to expect why he wouldn't have got some inside information at the family barbecue. Jesus' encounter with Herod was everything you'd now expect. He flooded Jesus with questions. Can you imagine? Demons and lepers, loaves and fishes. These subjects aren't mentioned explicitly, but they really don't need to be given Herod's character. But Jesus is silent. No magic show for Herod today. There's a tendency to think of Herod as some malevolent figure towards Jesus, but he doesn't castigate or rebuke Jesus for hearing claims that he was king. Yes, that infuriated the Sadducees and the Pharisees, but it doesn't seem to have infuriated Herod. Jesus was in his jurisdiction, and Herod could have messed with him. But he simply says to Jesus, Quote, so, you are a king, are you? End quote. You can imagine the sweet smile on his face when he said it. It was an ironic smile of sympathy, 
in recognition of Jesus' naivete. I've been trying my whole life to be king here, and you want to be king too? Well, good luck to you, pal. Let me know how it goes for you. Herod puts a cheaton on Jesus. That's Greek for bright robe. It's the same word to describe the raiment of angels, something really, really bright. We're not quite sure what color it was, if it was anything other than white, but it was done out of a sense of mockery. Here, uh, get this guy a robe from our king's pretender club. He can wear mine. And so he sends him back to Pilate. And the scripture records Pilate and Herod became friends that day. What a tragic reference that was. It took the betrayal and mockery of the Lord of heaven and earth to make a friendship out of two men. Maybe they imagined themselves as two old codgers someday, sitting under the shade in Solomon's portico, sipping spiced wine and munching on Roman honey cakes, watching belly dancers as they chuckled over all those damn hard decisions they once had to make. But no, that would never happen either. In a few short years, in 37 AD, Pilate would be summoned to Rome to account for his actions on other matters, and he'd disappear from history. Two years later, in 39 AD, Herod would find himself out of favor with Tiberius' successor, Caligula, done in by his nephew, Herod Agrippa, the brother of his wicked mistress, Herodias, and find himself banished to Gaul, where he died in exile in what is now known as France. And Solomon's portico would be knocked down stone by stone by conquering Romans some 31 years after that. Touché. When Jesus arrived back at Pilate's place, wearing this bright robe and being told that Herod doesn't want this very hot potato, Luke says Pilate was even more disinclined to find Jesus guilty. Again, banish from your minds that Pilate was the bloodthirsty monster painted by some of his contemporaries. He could have easily said, fine, what the hell, go crucify him. But he didn't. He reached for another option. Hey, he thought, or maybe it was one of his magnificent political advisors came in to remind him this. You know, the Jews have this custom where you can release a prisoner at Passover. Let's release him through that. The Easter amnesty, it was called. The notion was that the Jews could ask for the release of a prisoner so the prisoner could partake of the Passover meal event. Now, this amnesty is a very curious thing to historians. All four Gospels mention it, what makes it exceedingly unlikely from a simple historical perspective to say it never existed and that they just made it up. But here's the problem. It's not mentioned in any of the Levitical laws or in any other contemporaneous Jewish writings. There's a really interesting snippet mentioned in the Mishnah about 150 years later that says, quote, they may slaughter the Passover for one whom they have promised to bring out of prison, end quote. Now, that certainly has the feel of some custom they were recognizing here, but there's no reference to whom the they was that had promised to let someone out of prison. Aside from that snippet, we really have nothing to go on outside the gospel accounts. Enter this guy, Barabbas. His name literally means son of the father. Bar, as in son, like Simon Bar-Jonah, and Abba, the well-known word Jesus used to address his father. Some early scriptural texts add the word Jesus before Barabbas, which should make things both really interesting to us and confusing to them if we're talking about a guy who really was named Jesus, son of the father, who is being offered for exchange with our Jesus, who we know as the son of the father. Did the crowd get the wrong guy? The Gospels give us two other curious details about him. He was a, quote, leste, that is, a robber. The same term applied to the two fellows crucified along with Christ. And he was, quote, in revolt. He was some kind of revolutionary. This latter may explain why he may have had some popular support, as Jews were always, as a class, more or less in revolt from Rome. And revolutionaries have often enjoyed romantic support. In a way, Jesus never had a chance standing there next to Che Guevara. But Pilate never thought about that either. He went out to the mob and said, quote, Do you wish that I release to you the king of the Jews? Maybe he thought he would appeal to that large crowd that was there a week ago, 
singing Hosanna to him and laying palm branches in his path and ready for more dining on loaves and fishes. Of course, those people were not there. Given the swift motion of events over the last few hours, they must have been utterly bewildered by whatever news they had heard when they woke that morning without the benefit of turning on cable news to find out the latest details. Yes, the high priest could rally their people and get them to the praetorium. But how would Jesus' real followers and supporters really know about this event? And what would they do if they got there? Face crucifixion themselves? Let's just pray and sit tight and see what happens. Not an entirely unreasonable approach. And Pilate didn't help matters when he introduced Jesus to the mob as, quote, the king of the Jews. Yes, he'd take whatever dig at them he could, but this was not a dig that would likely take Jesus off his hands. Nor did the Jews want this as a free license to take Jesus the prisoner away from Pilate on the pretense of taking him out to dinner, when instead they'd rather take him out back and stone his brains out. They wanted Roman complicity, Roman formality, Roman juridical process. That way, they could never be accused by those 5,000 fish eaters and the picnickers who heard the Sermon on the Mount that they had killed him, or at least that they were solely responsible for killing him. Yes, they could explain, he really was an enemy of the state, and even the Romans recognized it. So don't blame us for getting rid of a heretical blasphemer. Pilate seems to have been genuinely ignorant of what the crowd wanted, that the crowd might not know the motives of the high priests that he had some measure of popularity with whatever crowd was there, that they would take him up on his offer and let Jesus go. The bottom line is that he naively never thought the crowd was set against him and would block his every move to let Jesus go. So the crowd clamors, We want Barabbas! It must have vexed Pilate greatly. Why the hell do these people want Che Guevara? Fine, you can have him. He lets Barabbas go. And then he announces, What then do you want me to do to the king of the Jews? The crowd rears its ugly head. Crucify him! Pilate had to be thinking, But why? For what crime? And Barabbas had to be thinking, Hey, I wonder whose house I'm going to for dinner tonight. Running through Pilate's head was the Justinian Code. Well, the code on which the code by that name would be called by later Roman Emperor Justinian I, it was the body of law in which Rome ruled, many features of which are with us today, like public trials on the sort. The Romans had capital punishment, but they had it only for very defined reasons. You'd face capital punishment if you threatened the Roman people or their safety. Hmm, Pilate thought, Jesus hadn't done that. You'd face capital punishment if you deliberately and maliciously exercised the functions of an official. Well, Jesus hadn't done that either. And finally, you could be put to death for maliciously causing friends of Romans to be enemies. No, Jesus hadn't done that either. So Mark records Pilate as turning to the crowd and saying, quote, Why? What evil has he done? The crowd ignores him. Crucify him! The crowd was threatening to riot. You can well imagine it. A large mass of people starting to shimmer like a lake full of trout at feeding time. Some guy climbs a wall. Some other guy starts pulling on the goalpost. So Pilate sees this and lets Barabbas go, and he orders Jesus scourged. At this point, a most interesting appeal occurs. Pilate's wife intervenes. How often does this kind of thing happen to Roman governors? We don't know. We certainly know it happened today, and there's no reason to think it didn't happen then. If you had to drag your poor wife all the way from Rome to some godforsaken place in the eastern frontier, you obviously were close to her, and you obviously owed her a few things in return, like the right to step into the middle of your business when she thinks it's the right time to do so. Claudia Procula, as her name is known in one of those apocryphal documents circulating a couple hundred years later, the so-called Letter of Pilate to Herod, she sends a message to Pilate. Matthew says he was sitting on the judgment seat at the time. She either knew that, which makes it a pretty bold move on her part, or she didn't know that, in which a case it still arrived to Pilate, perhaps by some terrified servant, wondering if he really should interrupt him at this critical time with a critical case and a riot about to break out. Pilate got the note and read these words, quote, 
Don't do anything to this good man, because today I've suffered terribly because of a dream about him. End quote. This good man. Yes, he could probably see that in the man's eyes, his demeanor, in the charges these envious priests had brought against him. She suffered terribly in a dream about him. Well, she was probably staying at the Ritz and not at the army barracks. If Pilate had spent the night at the Ritz too, he would have wondered what kept her up all night. If he hadn't and was staying at the fortress of Antonia, then he knew that this was a big dang deal that she would bother to send him a note about it all the way across the city. He can almost see the sweat forming on his brow. Dear Claudia Procula, you have this to your credit. You're the only person in the entire passion narrative, the only person who's recorded to have offered any defense or aid whatsoever to Jesus during his time of trial. You, a pagan woman, are the only one who is recorded to have come to his defense. Not surprisingly, she's venerated as a saint in some quarters of the church. Pilate seems to have been moved by Claudia's appeal because scripture tells us that Pilate next decided to wash his hands of the whole matter, literally. This is where we get the figure of speech to say, washing your hands of the matter in the first place. He brings out a large basin and a large pitcher. They had to be large because he wanted all to see what he was doing. And it was an image he especially wanted them to see if he'd been conducting proceedings in Greek so that any non-Greek speakers who were there, which were probably many, would understand exactly what he was doing. Matthew describes it this way, quote, Now Pilate, seeing that he was doing no good, but rather that a riot was breaking out, took water and washed his hands inside of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just man. See to it yourselves. This was no innovative sign on his part. Washing hands to symbolize innocence was a Jewish custom noted in both Deuteronomy and the Psalms. Historians note the same custom was observed among pagans too. It was rather insightful of Pilate. He'd been in Palestine long enough to know what customs and practices impressed or repulsed the local people, and so he was using one of their customs to make sure they understood him. Now, the crowd's response to this has led to a mistranslation and a very sad history because of it. The text is in Matthew, and it comes right after Pilate washes his hands and says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. Matthew has the crowd repeating this back, quote, all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children, end quote. This phrase has come to be known over time as the blood curse. And as you can imagine, it's been used to do some rather evil things to the Jewish people as a class over time. See, you're an accursed people, and your forefathers brought that curse on them and all of you. One thing we can be thankful for is modern scriptural analysis and a careful look at what was said here. Father Raymond Brown, who I mentioned at the outset, has probably the most impressive analyses of the passion narratives from a historical critical method, points out something very strange about this passage in its original Greek. There's no verb in it. The passage doesn't say, his blood is on us and on our children. It says literally, quote, his blood on us and on our children, end quote, like some kind of awkward cough. And he finds, when looking at other ancient and scriptural texts, that the passage is not some declaration or a prediction, much less a curse, but a simple acknowledgement of responsibility. In effect, Pilate says, I'm not going to take responsibility for this man's death. And the people respond, fine, we understand that. We accept that responsibility. That's a very, very different understanding than saying even mystically that we understand we'll be an accursed people because of it. So please spread the word along with Pope Benedict XVI and others who've been quick to make the same observation. The blood curse is no generational curse on the Jewish people and stop blaming them for the death of Christ. Blame your own sins for it. After this exchange, Pilate has Jesus scourged. Scourging under Roman law was a fairly common practice criminal was stripped naked, bound to a pillar or post, hung by his hands, and then beaten until his flesh hung in shreds. Freemen were scourged with rods, military personnel got beaten with sticks, 
and slaves would get beaten with leather thongs fitted with spikes of metal or bone. Those who've analyzed the famous Shroud of Turin, who many believe was the burial cloth of Jesus, have noticed multiple marks evidencing a beating by this latter kind of device, a flagrum, as it was called, and you can see the marks of metal or bone that would have been a part of it. Not only do we know what scourging was, we also know its purpose under Roman law, and that was fairly well-defined too. It was done for four basic purposes. First, it could be part of an interrogation technique. In Chicago, they used to hold your head down in a toilet until you answered their questions. In Rome, they'd scourge you to get the information they wanted. Second, it was done as a part of a death sentence, especially when it was part of a military punishment. But you did it rather lightly, not harshly, because you wanted to draw out the pain to humiliate the person, to deter others from ever thinking about doing that bad thing again. Third, it was done for independent police chastisement, such as for agitators. Beat the hell out of them so they know not to do it again. Again, don't kill them. Warn them in strong physical terms. Lastly, it might be done as the introductory stage of an execution. To the Romans, scourgings seemed to be just part and parcel with crucifixions. So why did Pilate have Jesus scourged here? His scourgings don't fit any of these usual categories. Remember, he hadn't sentenced him to death yet. He wasn't being interrogated for anything. He wasn't some rioter or agitator. Why did he do it? John actually suggests that Pilate did this to save Jesus. He beat him to defuse the crowd so he could then let him go. Luke records Pilate as saying this explicitly, quote, I will therefore chastise him and release him. What this suggests, even though the Gospels don't say, is that Jesus was actually scourged more severely because Pilate expected to release him, to disarm him. If Pilate were going to crucify him, the scourging would have been lighter because he would have wanted him to enjoy the fun of the cross for a longer period. It fits, therefore, that Pilate was later surprised to hear Jesus had died so quickly. He really shouldn't have been surprised because the soldiers appear to have assumed they had permission to beat him within an inch of his life. Oh, and what license they took. They mocked him along with the scourging. They dressed him up like a Hellenistic vassal king. If you wanted to do some comedic sketch about what kings in the region look like, you'd make sure they had these three elements, a purple robe, a staff in hand, and some kind of gilded wreath of leaves on the head. Hey, your lordship, what can we do for you? And so they did this with Jesus. They put some red or purple cloak on him, indicating that some soldier had already pilfered that nice bright robe Herod had just given him, and replaced it probably with some vomit-soaked rag left in the corner. They put in his hand some reed-like rod, after probably smacking him with it a few times. They pressed on his head a wreath of thorns, a nice sportly cap or crown, and they mocked him. All hail, king of the Jews! And they bent their knees before him, and they spit on him, rather than kissed him, as was customary. And they hit him all over, and they laughed, and had a good time. And they fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah on the suffering servant. Quote, I gave my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who plucked my beard, my face I did not shield from buffets and spitting. Pilate thought this would be plenty good enough. According to John, he says, quote, Behold, I bring him out to you, that you may know I find no guilt in him. End quote. These are the famous words depicted in art and literature, the ecce homo, or behold the man. Yes, world, behold this man. Choose you him or choose you another. Take your pick, now please. But see those very telling words from Pilate again, I find no guilt in him. He thought the mockery would please the mob and diffuse the problem. The crowd replies, no doubt egged on, possibly paid on, crucify him. Pilate, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. See that rashness, that anger resurface? You go do it, damn it. Eyes bulging, necks straining, loss of composure. 
Not quite the sober-minded judge you'd hope him to be. But the Jews stand firm. They are not going to do it, damn it. They want him to do it under complete cover of authority. They reply, quote, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he has made himself son of God. Interesting, he must have thought. This is a mob on the point of a riot. But they don't want to take him and deliver their own frontier justice. They want me to do it. And they want me to do it for their religious reasons. And they now referred to him not as some guy who called himself their king, but, quote, the son of God. They hadn't said anything about that before. Pilate must have been intrigued. He wanted another look at the prisoner. Who is this guy? He brings Jesus in for a second interrogation. Pilate, where are you from? Jesus, silence. Pilate, why do you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Jesus, you would have no power at all over me were it not given you from above. Whoa, from above? What did he mean by that? Actually, Pilate knew exactly what he meant by that. Good Roman that he was, he was steeped in all of the pagan pieties and superstitions of the time. He probably had woken that morning and gone to his Laurarium, a place in the center of his house used for worship of the gods. He might have kept a living flame to Vesta and small shrines to the Lares and Penates, where he would say a few words each morning to them and to his other favorite deities. Maybe pour some wine or oil and use words designed to get their undivided attention. To ask, never demand, something in exchange for some favor you would do for them. A contract, as it were, to magnify their name somehow. Lots of statues and temples got built around the Roman Empire based on these contracts. He would cut up the entrails of chicken or sheep and look at their livers and see if they were normal. If they were not normal, trouble was a-coming. Had he looked at any sheep livers recently? What did they look like to him? Did Claudia see a strange flock of birds when she woke that morning? That would have confirmed her bad dream. But the point was this. If you were a good Roman, conscious of all these stories and traditions, you never just knew when some god or goddess might present themselves before you and cause you the greatest grief or trouble you would ever know. Do you really want to get sideways with Diana or Apollo? Who was this prisoner standing before him? He didn't seem to be some Roman god in disguise. He was clearly something else. But he could be a god, and he could be presenting some trouble for him. He wanted nothing more to do with him. I imagine his stare stood on the back of his neck, and he had goosebumps. But that's just my imagination at work. But he really did want to release him. And the Jewish leaders somehow found this out. You can imagine the rumors spinning inside and outside the praetorium as the chief litigants refused to enter his premises and insisted on staying outside during these interrogations and proceedings. Hey, uh, Roman, what's going on in there? Uh, I don't know, Hebrew. Uh, they're talking. Talking about what? Uh, I don't know. Something about a higher power. What? Uh, yeah, I, I don't think the governor wants anything to do with your guy. And he's getting blood all over the place, too. Yes, a most unusual trial venue, for sure. And you'd have to think the Jewish leaders were feeling an acute sense of urgency for a different reason. Luke will later tell us that following Jesus to Calvary was, quote, a great multitude, including women who were bewailing and lamenting him. We should suppose that what became a multitude for the way of the cross was something that probably started growing in and around Pilate's praetorium before then, as word no doubt spread among Jesus' many followers that morning and led them to rally to the scene at their first opportunity. And don't think for a minute that Pilate and his advisors didn't notice that too. It may have been why he thought Jesus might have the numbers out there to take him over Barabbas. You can sense the fear of the high priests who saw a precious opportunity about to pass. They had the numbers there now. But any time, all those crazy people who just five days before were fanning him with palm branches and shouting Hosanna to him in the streets might just surpass him in numbers. And Pilate would see that for sure. Time for action, now. 
So the Jewish leaders played their final trump card. John has them saying this, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. I think it's fair to imagine them screaming this. Great. He needs them to remind him of who Caesar's friends are. Scoundrels. Paul echoed the sentiment that is addressed at Antioch. Though they could charge him with nothing deserving death, yet they begged Pilate to have him killed. You see what they were doing? They were threatening to denounce him to Caesar. They called his bluff at the Hippodrome. They had called him out over that votive tablets incident. They had gone over his head to Caesar before. He knew they'd do it again. They knew, and he knew, that he would face denouncement for releasing a claimed king. How do you explain that to your boss? Oh, but your emperor, no, listen, you, you really should have seen this guy, his eyes, and he said his kingdom wasn't of this world. Fingers drum on the boss's marble desk. The boss glares at him. It's worth pausing to think a bit more about Pilate's boss. Tiberius Caesar, born in 42 BC, became emperor in 14 AD. After a remarkably successful career as a Roman general, and he was in his 70s around this time, living mostly in Capri and away from Rome. By all accounts, he was a ruthless, paranoid, capricious ruler. He'd execute his enemies on the least word of an informant, and you saw this already with Sejanus. He imposed the death penalty for anyone who had criticized anything he had said or done. If you happen to have worn robes like him, he'd kill you. If you happen to have had honors voted to you on the same day they were voted to him, he'd kill you. He'd savagely execute his enemies. He'd have them thrown down long, steep marble stairs, dragged by hooks through the streets of Rome, their bodies dumped into the Tiber River and eaten by fish. He believed that all of his governors were grasping. No one could trust his favor. Seneca said you could always tell who his aides and advisors were. They were the ones with the long, drawn, pale faces. The Roman writer Suetonius tells of a fisherman who once got off light with him. He had scrambled the cliffs at Capri to present him with the catch of the day. His presence so startled Tiberius that he had the man's face beaten with the fish. This prompted the fisherman to say, it's a good thing I didn't bring him the huge crab I caught that day. Tiberius heard this, so he had the man's face beaten with a crab. Alas, Pilate was undone. He imagined a similar fate awaiting him, and it would not involve fish or crabs. He gave up. Pilate, behold your king. Of course, Pilate baited them, not thinking how fast they'd leap at the bait and use it against him. Behold your king. Yeah, he was throwing chum at them. Crowd, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate, shall I crucify your king? Yeah, more chum. What do you think they'd say? No, we were just kidding. Crowd, we have no king but Caesar. A bald-faced lie. The Jews hated Caesar. He was not their king. Never was, never would be. It must have galled Pilate, because he knew it. Pack of liars. The actual death sentence he gave to Jesus is unknown. We do know that to close the trial, the mode of death had to be specified and made public from the judgment seat, wherever that was. Ibis and crucem was the usual announcement. You shall mount the cross. If he said this in Greek, we don't know the customary words used. But we do know that sentences were carried out immediately. Soldiers quickly began getting wood and mallets and spikes out of the stockroom and some cheap wine with a sponge. Maybe it was Pasca, which is what soldiers and peasants drank, a mixture of bad wine or vinegar that got mixed with coriander seeds and honey to make it taste better. John tells us it was about the sixth hour when Pilate had sat down on the judgment seat. This puts it at about noon. But that means about six hours had passed since the Jews first brought Jesus to Pilate, when Pilate examined Jesus, sent him to Herod, got him back from Herod, tried to release him, but was forced to release Barabbas instead, read Claudia's note, washed his hands, had him scourged, tried to release him again, examined him again, and then finally gave in to fear. Yeah, he was a coward. History says so. And I find that scary because I don't think I would have acted any differently. 
the same time, I'm glad I wasn't a Pharisee. I don't think I would have acted any differently either. Jurors, anyone? Ecce homo. God help us all. We turn next to the crucifixion. Everybody knows about that, and yet everybody does not know about that. Who came up with that idea? When was it done? Why was it done? How was it done? What do we know about Jesus' own crucifixion and some of the figures along the way? Please join us for Lecture 7, our last lecture in this series, The Crucifixion. <laughs>